Good morning. Christ is risen. It's good to be back at Sanctuary. And this will be my last time for a little while. So those of you who are wondering why you keep showing up and here I am speaking again like it's Groundhog's Day, you're going to get some respite. Right? So for the rest of the summer, it's going to be cake for you. Um, so on Tuesday of this week, I get a message, Facebook message from Cody Jefferson here on staff at the church. Cody, and I say this with as much affection as it's possible to say anything, Cody is an, is, is an overachiever, right? My wife is an overachiever, right? They're, they're one of, they're, they belong to that special class of human beings who do what they should do and then go above and beyond it, right? Get this message from Cody. What's your title for the sermon on Sunday? And it's Tuesday. I don't know what my title is. I know I'm going to talk about baptism. I know I'm going to engage these scriptures. I don't know what my title is going to be. But Cody being Cody, being the genius he is, starts hitting me with a stream of suggestions. What if we went with this, 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 or this, or this, or this, or this? And not only that, which is in itself remarkable, he then began creating images, graphics, for these sermons that he was sending to me, all on the fly, right? He had two in particular that I thought were worthy of consideration. This is the first one, drowning in divinity. And then my personal favorite of all the dozens that he sent to me, hosed in the Holy Ghost, which is, I think, the best title to any sermon that's ever been given, and in this case, not given, right? So I ended up telling him, I don't have a title. Let's just call it baptism, what it is and why we do it. And I stole even that because Ed just a few weeks ago talked about communion, what it is and why we do it. But that's what we're going to talk about today. Baptism, what it is and, and, and why we do it. Um, and Cody, we love you. If you ever hear these words, just know that was all said with affection. So I want to start, though, by talking about the way we read the world. All of us have opinions. We, we have ways of making sense of what happened to us in our life. And, and that implies to everything, the way we encounter our neighbors, our loved ones, our children, the way we understand catastrophic events, the way we see political realities, and the way we read scripture and the way we worship. Like All of those things are interpreted, we interpret them through a grid. But the way the grid works is that we're not aware we're interpreting through a grid. So one way of saying it is, we have opinions, but what we often do not realize, almost always do not realize, is that the opinions we have are the result of a field of interpretation, a grid that has us, and we don't know that we're had by it. So we have opinions, but we never really come to terms with the fact, why do I have this opinion and not that one? And the reason is, because this grid is settled on us and we're unaware of it. This, this, give me a few examples just to kind of ease into it. My wife and I were at an OU football game a few years ago, and somewhere along in, in the middle of the, for, the first quarter, and I should say, my wife knows as much about football as I do. She loves football, grew up in a school, went to high school, state championship in Oklahoma, won a state championship in Oklahoma. She cares about football. She knows about football. But in the middle of the first quarter, she leans over to me and says, why does the scoreboard say balloon? I looked up at the scoreboard and looked back at her, and she's got this it's tattooed on her face. Why would it say balloon? 
you've probably already figured out, it said ball on, and then it had the yard line. But if you've ever been to, to Owen Field, you understand, you, you've seen that ball on, are, the words are compressed so that it looks like one word. And what was happening to her in that moment is that the way she had learned to read English is that when words have that spacing, you read them as one. So even though she's at a football game, right, a football game, and she loves football, because she had an interpretive grid to read words that are spaced in a certain way, when she saw ball on, arranged through that spacing, she saw balloon. Right? She's not an idiot. She's the smartest woman I know. In addition to being the most beautiful and the most godly, I better, I, I can't go all, right? It's a grid. Let me give you an example of, from my own life. So when I was a, a, t- a young teenager, I worked for my father during the summer. And my, my dad had been, he was a Marine and then a motorcycle cop and then a mechanic, right? I know you're wondering, how did this come out of that, right? He is too, I'm sure, to this day. But I worked in the summers with him at, at his shop. And one day this woman came and she was driving like a 75 Oldsmobile of some kind, huge car. And she says to us, I can't get the driver's door open, driver's side door. I've shut the door with the seatbelt in it and it's stuck. So she brings it to us to repair it. And my dad, who's busy with other things, says to me, take care of that. So I spend a good amount of time trying to get this door open, mostly by muscling it, right? By trying to force it by trying to pull the seatbelt out, by, you know, cussing at it. This is what you do when you're a teenager. And finally, I come to dad, and I don't want to go back to him and tell him I can't do it, but I finally had to do it. And I say, I I can't get it. So he comes out, and I think, truth be told, he was probably just as annoyed with me as he was with the car. And a few minutes into his working with it, he breaks the handle. So he says to me in disgust, drive it down, go around to the passenger side, climb through, drive it down to the body shop, have them fix this handle and see if they can get this door open. So here I jump in the car, drive down to the body shop, tell them there, and and I lie not, this is exactly what happened. The man looked at me, he got on the passenger side, slid across to the driver's seat and unlocked the door and opened it. Right? And that's much worse than seeing ball on as balloon, right? But what had happened, of course, is that we had been given a grid by this woman telling us the door was stuck. We had just assumed this door is stuck, and oh, we can see the seatbelt, it must be stuck for that reason. And we never considered the much simpler solution, which is she had locked the door herself and then shut it. Right? Now, that happens when we read Scripture. We come to the text of Scripture, or we come to the work of God in our lives, and we don't realize that the opinions we have are the result of something that has us that's shaping the way we see what's there in the text. I'll give you another example from the church I grew up in, which is kind of a caricatured version, I realize. But this is, in fact, what we were taught. We were taught that women and men were not allowed to wear any jewelry at all. So women, especially women, if you have on necklaces or rings or earrings, just know, as far as the church I grew up in the concerned, you're, you're Jezebel, right? You're, you're Jezebel. But there was a text in the New Testament that was particularly troubling for those preachers and those churches. And that was the story of the prodigal son. You remember why. When the prodigal returns home, he gets the fatted calf killed for him. He gets the robe put around his shoulders. He gets new shoes on his feet. And he gets a ring on his hand. Well, when you belong to a tradition that says wearing rings is sinful... 
right? No matter what the ring is, it's sinful. That's a problem text because here's Jesus telling a story about a man who was given a ring. So here's how they dealt with it. This is the answer that they provided to the problem. That in the Greek, now by the way, this is not true, but this is the argument. That in the Greek, the text says not that he put the ring on his hand, but that he put the ring in his hand. So the prodigal didn't wear a ring. He carried it around with him and used it when he needed to use it. (laughs) Think about that for just a moment, right? What's happening there? There's a grid that is, must be preserved at all costs. And the text, when it seems to threaten that grid, we just reinvent the text to fit the grid. Right? Now, that's a caricatured, absurd kind of version. What I want to suggest to you is that we all do that all the time. Not in that extreme of form, but that we have these grids that have us, more to, is, is more accurate to say. And when we read Scripture or we discern what God's doing, we, we, we fit it back to what we know. And I think this is perhaps especially true when it comes to a practice like baptism. And for most of us, this certainly isn't true of all of us, but for most of us, we have been taught that what really matters, what really matters, when you come down to it, the bottom line is what God is doing in the believer's heart. At the end of the day, what what really counts is your personal relationship with God in your heart. And whenever you're really, when that's the grid through which you see everything, then it's really hard to make sense of what things like baptism really mean. And so we end up trying to find a way to fit baptism to that grid. So one of the ways we do it is we say baptism is as important as you feel it is for you. Right? So many of our churches practice rebaptism, and we let people get baptized as much as they want to, depending on how it makes them feel, whether or not they feel like they need to. Right? That's one of the ways that we fit what baptism is to the grid. If, it, if it's something you want to do, so I've been baptized, I would say, 967 times, right? Because the churches I was a part of, if there was a baptism and you wanted to be baptized, jump in, right? We're ready for it, right? We're prepared for you to be baptized over, because we had reconsidered baptism as a personal experience, right? What does it mean to you? And, and that's as far as we could go. But what I want to do this morning is suggest, what if baptism is more and different from that? What if baptism, in fact, is something that wants to scramble the grid for us, wants to shift the way we see things, wants to free us from what has us so that we, we see the world differently? I, I think if we look at what the church has traditionally said about baptism, then all of a sudden, the scriptures about baptism read very differently. And, and there are two claims the church makes about baptism that I think are really hard for us to make sense of. The first one is that in Jesus' baptism, he's not just submitting to a symbolic act that shows what he's going to do someday. But in his baptism, he actually brings changes to reality. That his baptism changes what the world is. Now, that's almost impossible for us to think. We know how to make sense of baptism as a symbolic act. It symbolizes something that really happens in your heart. But traditionally, the church has said when he was baptized, Jesus' baptism was not just a symbol. It was an event in which God acted on reality and changed what reality is. And therefore, 
When we're baptized, we participate in that because the second claim the church has always made about Jesus' baptism is that it's the kind of event that not only changes reality, but it opens up space for us to be included in it. So when Jesus is baptized, not only does he change what's happening in the world, change what the world even is, he makes it so that we can get inside of his experience. So let me show you just how difficult this is. And many of you will walk away today shaking your head thinking that I've, I've lost my mind. In fact, I've said this before. I, I kind of have the reverse Pentecost gift. You remember on the day of Pentecost, they speak in tongues and then everyone hears it in their own language, right? So who knows what they were speaking, but they heard it in their own language. I have the opposite gift. Like I'm speaking English. I'm speaking the language all of you know. And some of you, all you're hearing is tongues, right? You're like, I wish someone would get to the interpretation, right? What is this, right? But that's because of the grid, that's because of the grid. And, and so this is what the church has always said, that our baptism makes it so that we actually share in the reality-changing force of Jesus' baptisms. Think about Romans 6. Paul says, those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. And if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now think about what Paul just said. He didn't say, when we're baptized, we symbolize what God is going to do in our hearts or has done in our hearts. What he says is when we're baptized, we're joined with Christ's death and we die with him. We don't know how to compute that. We don't know how to make that work. All we read is balloon. <laughs> balloon, right? Or when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that all who have been baptized have been baptized into the one body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no Jew or Greek slave or free, because we have been made to drink of one spirit. Balloon. We have no idea what Paul said to us. Because he's making a claim that doesn't fit the way we've come to understand what baptism can mean. So we end up saying baptism symbolizes that reality that's accomplished some other way. But what if Jesus' baptism is what the church has always said it is? That it's an event that changes the way things work and it's the kind of event that opens up space so that when we're baptized, we're baptized in him. And the same things that God was doing in and to him happen in and to us and shape us that way. St. Maximus of Turin, who was a fifth century, early 5th century Christian bishop, has this homily on baptism. And, and he, it's, it's a famous sermon about baptism. And one of the things he says about baptism captures the heart of this first point. He says that in being baptized, Christ is baptized not to be made holy. He's not baptized to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy. And by his cleansing, to purify the waters which he touched. Now think about that claim. Do you see what he's done? He shifted focus from the baptizing to the one who's baptized. This is the crucial move. The question is not, was Jesus baptized? That's not even the claim we make. What we say is Jesus was baptized and because he's the one who's baptized and the father speaks over him and the spirit rests upon him, baptism itself is changed. So what John was doing before Jesus came was a symbolic act that pointed to the coming of Jesus. Everyone else John baptized was baptized symbolically. Someday God's going to act and we need to prepare ourselves for it. But when Jesus got in the water, the very event itself changes what baptism means. He makes the water holy. He's not, he has no sins to be washed away. 
but he alters what baptism can be for us. You see how that's an entirely different way of of seeing the grid. The same, by the way, holds true for resurrection. The good news is not that someone beat death. The good news is that Jesus beat death. It wouldn't be good news if I told you Stalin has been raised from the dead. Resurrection is not good news just because someone beat death. So what? Resurrection is good news because it's Jesus who beat death. And he didn't just somehow escape dying. He defeated death at its heart. He trampled down death by death so that death is no more. And we have confidence and joy and we share it as good news because we know who has been raised. Not just that someone was raised. I'm preaching better than you're shouting as we say. Right? And, and the same holds for baptism. It's not that Jesus was baptized. It's that Jesus was baptized. And he alters what baptism is and now includes us in it. Now, with all that said, let's come to the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. There are four movements we're going to see in this text. These four movements are the movements that happen in Jesus' baptism, and therefore, when we're baptized, happen to us. Because what happens to him in baptism happens to us in baptism. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened. The the language is actually even more vivid. The heavens are rent apart. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now again, what are the two claims the church makes? That Jesus' baptism changes the way things are. The heavens are rent open, never to be closed again. Remember when Jesus dies, the the gospel says that the veil in the temple is rent. Because he's opened the way to the Father. But the rending of the veil at his death has already begun with the rending of the heavens at his baptism. His baptism changed the way earth and heaven relate. It didn't just symbolize it, it accomplished it. This is good news. This is good news. His baptism is the way God chose to open heaven up to earth and earth to heaven. The heavens rent and the voice of the Father says, this is my son and the spirit rests upon him. And it's important that we see how this is said, that not that Jesus, Jesus heard in his heart or Jesus imagined with his mind's eye. Jesus saw and heard. The crowds recognized God is speaking. The spirit is falling. The heavens are torn open. Reality's changing. That's what Jesus' baptism does. And then immediately Jesus is driven into the wilderness. So all of these things Again, happened to Jesus, therefore they happened to us. These four movements. First, he comes to the water. He goes under the water. He comes out of the water and receives his identity and his vocation. He he hears it proclaimed over him, and we hear it proclaimed over him. And then he goes out into the wilderness. And one way of thinking about the Christian life is that the Christian life is lived after baptism as in the wilderness with Jesus, struggling against all the enemies of God. 
It's not the only way to think about the Christian life, but that is a faithful way of thinking about it. That all of us who've been baptized into Christ, who've been baptized into his death, who've been baptized into his body, right now we're living in the wilderness with him, fighting with him against all of those temptations that would keep us from who we're called to be. We're being shown all the kingdoms of the world and we have to remain faithful. We're being asked to turn stones to bread and we have to remain faithful. And every day in every situation, you're facing those three temptations over and over and over again. Find some other way to fulfill God's will. Throw yourself down from the temple. He'll bear you up. And over and over again, we have to say, we don't live by bread alone. It's not right to tempt the Lord your God. Over and over again, we have to, with Christ and in Christ, defeat the enemy in the wilderness. But I want to focus for today, I want to focus on those first two movements that I said applied to Jesus and his baptism and therefore apply to us. And that's coming to the water and going under the water. Jesus' baptism, as the Gospels tell it, is a kind of retelling of Israel's story. You remember the story of Israel's exodus. They're in Egypt, in slavery. God delivers them. They go through the Red Sea on dry ground. I mean, you've seen the movie, right? Waters part. They go through on dry land. Then they come out into the wilderness where they're tested for 40 years. They're tested. Are they going to trust God or not? What's in their hearts? And then after 40 years, they cross another river, the Jordan River, on dry ground, into the promised land where they begin to be the people of God in the promised land. But Jesus reverses that whole trajectory. Jesus is born in the promised land. He's he's circumcised and blessed in the promised land. He's raised to maturity in the promised land. And when the time comes for him to step into his ministry, his public ministry, he comes back to that Jordan, goes through the Jordan, back into the wilderness, where he faces the same temptation that Israel anciently had not been able to overcome. And for Israel, and on Israel's behalf, he overcomes the tempter. He remains faithful where they could not. He remains faithful where they could not. And he does it for them. And then he comes back in the power of the Spirit from that place of wilderness into the promised land as the Messiah who says, this is what it looks like to be the people of God. That's what happens to us in our baptism. We take that same reverse trip. But those, those two movements, Jesus not only comes to the water, and I'm going to end on that point, but he goes under the water. And this is one way in which Jesus' story is different from Israel's. Israel went through the Red Sea. They went through the Jordan River. Who went under the water? Pharaoh and the enemies of God. Again, you've seen the movie. Pharaoh and the enemies of God go under the water. And what Jesus is doing in going not only through the water, but under it, is he's identifying not only with Israel, but also with the nations. Because he's Lord, not just of the saved, but also of those who are lost. Not just of the redeemed, but of those who are on their way to damnation. He's Lord of all. And because God wills that no one should perish, Jesus doesn't just identify with the victors, he also identifies with those who are overcome and defeated. And this is what Bob Eckblad says in his book, A New Christian Manifesto, talking about our baptism. All distinctions between insiders and outsiders... The saved and the damned, perpetrators and victims, the righteous and the unrighteous, clean and unclean, Israel and the nations are leveled when insiders go under the water instead of through it on dry ground. 
Underwater, like Pharaoh and his armies, we die totally. Underwater, God's chosen people join the damned. Now see, many of us imagine baptism as what sets us apart from the damned. I'm baptized. I belong to this group that God is going to save and not to that group that God is going to damn. But what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus' baptism shows us that in baptism, he joins himself to those people in order to save them. And that what baptism does is not set us apart from the world. It sets us apart for the world. We're chosen out of the world because God wants to send us back into the world as the light of the world so they can know the Savior who has given his life for them. The chosen are chosen because God loves the non-chosen. The elect are elected for the sake of the non-elect. God is so in love with your neighbor and the stranger around you and your enemy that he's brought you in. Astonishingly, he's brought you in to his plan to reach them. Why am I a believer? Why do I have faith? Why can I trust that God is who he says he is? Because God has gifted that to me as a way of collaborating with him in reaching someone who does not yet have that faith to believe. That's what baptism does. It puts us into relationship with the world. It doesn't save us from relationship with the world. We identify with them. But all of that rests on Jesus coming to the waters and submitting to John the Baptist. You notice how the text says, he comes to be baptized of John. And how does John respond? I'm not going to baptize you. You should baptize me. I've already told everyone I'm not even worthy to touch your sandals. You existed before I was born. You're my creator. You can't baptize. I can't baptize you. You have to baptize me. And Jesus' response is, let it be. For only in this way can we fulfill all righteousness. This is the thing we often miss about God. God is so humble that his work begins with God submitting to God's own creation. That's what the incarnation is. God submits to be carried in the womb of Mary and submits to be circumcised in the temple that one day he will cleanse and submits to be raised by Joseph and Mary even when at 12 years old he already had the wisdom to confound all of the experts in the law. And when he comes to the Jordan River, what Jesus has modeled over and over again from the womb unto maturity is that God's work when it breaks into the world looks small. It looks humble. So in, in ancient icons and the tradition of ancient icons of Jesus' baptism, we have a picture of Jesus standing up to his neck in the Jordan. And the waters, not always, but often are represented as black or very dark which is a way of representing the, the sinfulness, the darkness that is in the world. Jesus is up to his neck in the waters of the world. And on either side of him stand the angels who are in heaven and are holding the, the cloak of his divinity, and John the Baptist who is praying over him. And then from above him the Spirit descends. And you can see in this image how the Spirit's coming is rending the heavens. As the Spirit is descending, the very structure of reality is being reshaped. And under Jesus' feet, I'm not sure if you can see it in this image or not, he's standing on gates, which are the gates of hell. And from those gates, the heads of serpents are rising up and striking at his feet. And around his feet are the bodies of dead, of the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous dead. 
Because in, in this tradition of iconography, Jesus in his baptism is being brought into the waters of chaos. He has his feet on the gates of hell. He's the one who conquers death, hell, and the grave. And he does that not only at the cross, but he begins that work at his baptism. That's what this icon is representing. But notice how Jesus is the, the focal point. He's the center of it all. But he's up to his neck in the water of darkness. He's surrounded by death and the power of the enemy at his feet, under his feet, but still striking at him. Above him, the spirit is settling. The old and the new are coming together. Heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible are coming together. And it's all being centered in him, in this event. It's all converging in him, in this event. But here's what we often miss, and I think we miss it not only in how we think about Jesus' baptism, but how we think about ours. All of that convergence comes to happen in Jesus under the hand of John the Baptist. Under the hand of John the Baptist. The creator, the one through whom and for whom and in whom all things were made. The one in whom all things hold together. When he comes to do his will, and to accomplish the Father's will. When he comes to change the structure of reality, he says the only way I can do that is by getting under the hand of a man who's called to witness to me. If God is willing to submit to the church, how dare we not? If this is the way Jesus accomplishes his mission, how could we think we, won't accomplish, we will accomplish our mission, his mission, any other way? And what baptism teaches us, of many things it teaches us, but one of the things that baptism teaches us is that the, the Christian life begins with submission to the humans God has called into his service. Right? Now, I'm starting to mess with your grid, and I know that. I set you up, right? We've been, we've been moving to this point all along. We, we should know this. Think about Scripture, for instance. We, we talk all the time about Scripture as God's Word, and it is. I, I affirm fully, Scripture is God's Word, but it's God's Word as the words of human beings who've been gifted to speak to us. It's as if Jesus said, if you want to know who I am, you have to listen to Matthew talk about me. You have to listen to Mark talk about me. You have to listen to Peter and Paul talk about me. You want to know my heart? Listen to their hearts. That's humility. He doesn't say, let me push them aside and tell you who I am. He says, listen to them talk about me. One of my mentors in college, her brother, who was not a believer, was out hunting one weekend and got lost. And was lost, if I remember the story right, lost for several days. And after several days, even though he was not a believer, he began to pray. And he had a vision, he said. And in his vision, he saw the house of God. That's the way it was described. It was the way it was described to me. He saw the house of God. And he could see into the house. And he could hear what was happening in the house. And he wanted desperately to get in the house. He wanted something to drink and to eat. He wanted to feel warm and safe. He, he wanted to be in that house more than he wanted anything he had ever wanted. I want to be in there. But he couldn't find a way in. He walked around and around. He yelled. Couldn't find a way in. And then an angel appeared to him. And said, you're welcome to come in. And he said, I want to come in. I'm trying to get in. But I can't find a way in. And this is what he said, the angel said to him in his vision. Oh, you can't get in because the door is too small for you. You're too big to get inside God's house. 
Now think about that. I, I, don't, I don't know if that happened or didn't happen, but I do think it does represent something true about the way God works with us. Think about the stories. Think about the story of Naaman. Naaman is this leprous Syrian Gentile who hears that the God of Israel can heal him, and so he comes to the prophet of Israel expecting to be healed. And when he shows up at the prophet's house, what does, what does the prophet do? He sends out his servant. And how should I put this mildly? Naaman is not entirely pleased. He throws an absolute fit. Whatever, uh, he cusses an Assyrian. Right? He spits, he kicks the dirt. Right? And he says, do you not know who I am? I didn't come all of this way to see your servant. I came to see the prophet, and I wanted the prophet to come out and wave his hands over me and speak a word of incantation over me and, for, and to be healed. And what does the, the prophet do? He sends out the servant to tell him, go and wash in the Jordan, dip seven times. What? If I'm going to dip in a river, I'm going to dip in a clean one, thank you very much. Not in that filthy river. And I didn't come here to see the servant. But what if this is how God always deals with us? We come to him wanting to be healed from our sins and he sends us out a servant and then tells us to do something that seems absurd. That, I think, is what baptism is. It's the door that's too small for us to get into. And it's a reminder to us that if you want to come into this kingdom, it begins by being willing to submit to the people of God. And that not only means in this context, your pastors. It also means the church at large. One of the, and some, I mean, I don't know how long you've been attending a sanctuary. I don't know how you feel about all these things. But I know that over the last several years, sanctuary has started to celebrate communion every week. It's not, has not always been done. And has started to confess the creed. And that's been happening at least as long as I've been here. But for some of you, maybe you were here before all that started. And, and maybe there's a part of you that wonders, like, what are we doing? It's about coming under the hand of John the Baptist. It's about recognizing that there are some things that God calls us to do. And we just have to be willing to get under that hand. And it's about being small enough to say, of course God is large. He can do what he wants to do. He can turn water to wine if he wants. But he chooses to work in the most humble ways through human beings almost all the time. And if you want to get to him, you have to be willing to come to what he gives you. And so one of the reasons we take communion every week and say the creed every week and read scripture every week is that we want to say we are the kind of people who are willing to get under the hand. If you want John the Baptist to bless us, if that's the way, if that's how we have to posture ourselves in order to hear, this is my beloved, then so be it. That's what we learn in baptism. And I think it begins this way. Stand with me if you will. I think it begins this way because the whole of the Christian life is to be lived this way. Baptism is where we begin. That's step one of following Jesus. And step one of step one is come to John the Baptist and get under his hand. Why would God do that? Before there is the heavens being rent open, before the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son, before there is overcoming the enemy in the wilderness, there is coming and kneeling under the hand of John the Baptist. Why? Because I think at the heart of the Christian life is the humility and the patience to trust the people God gives you and the practices God has given to those people to make you into who you need to be. 
So I want to encourage you. Don't be afraid to submit to what God is doing in the church. That is precisely where Jesus is. And when we get under the hand, both in terms of submitting to the leadership here and the community here and submitting to what God is doing in the church historically, traditionally, when we get under the hand, then we hear, this is my son. And the spirit rests upon us and we become the kind of people who can resist the temptation to turn stones to bread. Father, I pray that you help us to be that kind of humble, to be that kind of small. God, thank you for the gift that baptism is, for the ways that baptism calls us to be a different kind of people and remakes us by remaking our imaginations. God, I pray that you, beginning with me, would train us in that kind of humility. As we say these prayers, as we read these scriptures, as we take this meal, God, help us to kneel under the hand of the ones you've called us to kneel under so we can hear you say, this is my beloved. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.